I will invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, we're continuing here in our exposition of this wonderful epistle. And as you're turning there and getting prepared with your notes, hopefully, and settling down for a challenging message, I hope, this morning, because it's a challenging text, I want to uh, tell you the story about um, <clears throat> a church called Barnaul. Barnaul Baptist Church in Siberia. Uh, last generation story is told in this book um, called A Song in Siberia, written by Anita and Peter Danica. They are founders of the Slavic Gospel Association. Peter served as president for years, which is, uh, was in Wheaton headquartered, but now is headquartered here in Loves Park. This really tells the story of a, of a Russian church and the difficulties it had during the, the time of persecution, during the days of Stalin's reign. In the days of Stalin's reign, in the early 1900s, um, Christians were seen as a threat to the government and often uh, exiled into Siberia. So you think about what happens when you have Christians being exiled to Siberia unknowingly, Stalin is sowing the seeds of the gospel all over Siberia as Christians are being forced into these places to live, which um, is worse than Illinois with the cold and the terrible weather and things. With these uh, places of exile, one of them was Barnul. B-A-R-N-A-U-L. I have no idea how to say it. Barnul. You'll hear me say it several different ways. The church began there with a, it's just a cluster of Christians gathering together. As they found themselves exiled, as they would come together for worship and encouragement. And it's interesting, as Stalin, you know, the religious persecution came, the 1920s hard, the 1930s hard. But time of World War II, uh, Stalin let up a little bit, less thinking the Christians would be open to the Nazis who they might see as deliverers. So they let up a little bit. There was a measure of religious freedom from the 1950s to the 1960s, uh, early 1950s, actually, 1940s, 1950s. And uh, the Barnul Baptist Church there grew to be about 500 people. It's a good, prospering, strong church. And then uh, Khrushchev took over and... Uh, his government launched a new offensive against religion in the early 1960s, 1959 or so. From 1959 to 1964, in five years, an estimated 10,000 Orthodox and Baptist churches were closed during that time. And in fact, in January 1961, the Soviet government came upon this church in Barnul. They hung locks with seals in the doors of their house. There's a prayer house, basically what they had, enough to fit 500 people in it, cram 500 people in there. The act meant much more than a loss of place to meet. It signaled the loss of official sanction. Don't cross these doors. Don't go in there. As far as Soviet government was concerned, the Barnall Baptist Church no longer existed. But you know, that's not going to stop Christians from gathering together and worship, is it? They didn't, but they had to be a little bit uh, more discreet about it. And to be careful how they gathered. Whenever they gathered, they tried not to disturb the neighborhood. But despite their caution, in the closely watched Soviet society didn't go unnoticed. The police insisted they were guilty of disturbing the peace and meeting secretly accused. These accusations are used as a pretext of prosecution. And although the Christians were well within their legal rights to gather in this way, according to the laws in the books, the 
the KGB would come upon this church. Representatives would come and visit people in the nearby neighborhoods to try to collect damaging evidence against the church. Oftentimes they'd bring a bottle of vodka hoping to induce some charges, invent complaints against the Christians. And yet the testimony of these Christians wasn't all bad. There was one woman who said, the singing cheers the whole neighborhood. So they were about doing good even in their meeting. But the persecution continued. The Soviet government levied fines against Christians who used their homes for meetings. They, um, a first-time offense, a fine was usually 50 rubles, half a month's salary. Sometimes what they do is the Soviets would come, they'd find them, and they'd just raise an offering, pay the fine, and continue to meet. But as uh, time goes on, second offenses, third offenses, those fines just only increase. Sometimes even extended fines were levied against the believer's salary for allowing believers to gather um, at their home. People lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ. Uh, a one respected engineer was arrested for organizing a harmful religious meeting. Spent two years in jail and was given a job sweeping streets. Darren, you're an engineer, huh? Can you imagine Darren? You know, Gaul come to his house for flocks and we come over there. He's arrested two years in prison and then he's out sweeping streets as his job. Police officers harassed those coming to the meetings. After meetings were held, they'd come and, and search the homes, searching for any kind of um, Bibles or hymn books or Christian literature. They would even go to some of the church members who visited those meetings and, and search their homes. Over the years, the government arrested many of the church members, bringing them to the police station, questioning, intimidation. They'd imprison the church leaders sometimes for a couple of days, sometimes weeks on end. Sometimes they're sent away to prison camps. One of the members, his name was Nikolai Kuzmich Kamara. One of the leaders there was tortured and killed in prison because of his testimony in Christ. He went to jail in robust health and cheerful was their testimony. And when he was returned to the Christian community, he was returned in a casket. They opened the casket to see his body and they didn't find a robust health of a man. When they opened the casket, they found a tortured body of an old man. Chains had scarred his hands, burned and scorched the palms of his hands, the soles of his feet. Nails had been torn from his fingers and his toes. Sharp red-hop object had left a gaping wounds in his abdomen. Both feet showed signs of puncture wounds. The body was swollen and bruised. When they looked at him, initially in the coffin, his mouth was filled with cotton. They said, what was that about? And one of the deacons stood by the coffin when the cotton was removed and he recalls that his tongue had been torn out. Later we heard from other prisoners that our brother had spent his final breath telling the guards about Jesus. The authorities could not stop his testimony, but they tore out his tongue to stop him from talking about Christ. And such persecutions continued for more than a decade in Barnol, Siberia. But the Soviet government could never stop the church because Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In fact, this book is subtitled, The True Story of a Russian Church That Could Not Be Silenced. The entire book talks all about the persecutions they faced and how through it all, the church members remained faithful to the Lord through it all. Well, as we come here to 1 Peter this morning... Our text here talks about the issues of suffering 
And particularly here, suffering for the sake of righteousness. If you look there in verse 14 of my text even, that's where I get my title from my message. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's what the church in Barnul, Siberia experienced. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. They're faithfully serving the Lord, doing what was good, and yet they faced incredible suffering as a result. Now, Peter, up to this point, has alluded to suffering. He talked in chapter 1, verse 6, that now for a while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. He wrote in chapter 2, verse 12, about keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles and so that when you're slandered as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. He talked in chapters 2 and 3 about how you submit to authority because they are probably oppressing you. Masters are oppressing you. You're in difficult situations, homes with disobedient husbands. Chapter 3, verse 9 speaks about returning evil for, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. So evil's coming, insult's coming, persecution's coming, distress is coming. And uh, he's more alluded to it. But now, at this point, he's going to address it head on. He's going to teach about suffering, suffering for the sake of righteousness and how to deal with it. Let me read our text. 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17. It is better, I'm sorry, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This text, Peter is giving counsel to those who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. He's talking to those who are doing good things. They are being righteous. And yet, because of others, suffering is coming upon them. Now, here in America, our suffering for the sake of righteousness is few and far between. I mean, the reason I bring this up is because this is closer to perhaps some of what the, those in the early church were experiencing as they brought the gospel into a totally pagan culture, viewed them as enemies. Here in America, we are free to worship. No government's going to come and lock our doors. In fact, I don't know of any church the government has shut down merely because of proclaiming the gospel. They shut down churches, the government does, for you know evading tax issues and you know um, being hostile to government or being a David Koresh type of thing or breaking laws, but they don't, they don't shut down our house of worship merely because we've worshipped and proclaimed the gospel. I don't know if pastors have been in prison for preaching the gospel. Certainly some have been in prison for acts of civil disobedience, and that's fine. But not for preaching the gospel like these people were. Not for doing good in that way. <clears throat> I don't know of any Christians who have been arrested in seeking to do a good deed. And yet, here in America, there is some suffering that takes place. I'm not saying there's none, but our suffering is on the small scale. Our suffering, our suffering for the sake of righteousness comes perhaps persecution at work where you're seeking to be a light in a dark place. When you refuse to join your colleagues in talking about those things which are immoral and impure, 
You refuse to join with them, but rather you identify them as evil and wrong. Persecution comes. Well, who are you, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, to judge us? Judge not lest you be judged. It's the verse that comes off people's lips. But rarely does it ever come to the point of actually losing a job. No, there might be some instances. Persecution also in our day and age might come in families. I know that when uh, um, a Jewish person embraces Jesus as Messiah, he'll be disowned by his family. I remember when uh, Yvonne and I were at DeKalb, we were ministering there at Kishwaukee Bible Church. We met a, a gal and uh, she came to know the Lord. Um, some through our ministry and some through other college students there during college years at NIU. And she faced some very real persecution from her family. Uh, you're no longer my daughter anymore, I think her father told her. Kind of kicked her out. But over the years, as she showed the fruit of Christianity, she has slowly been able to come back in the family a little bit. Still, there's much reservation there. Family persecution exists in our culture today. Those who grow up in Roman Catholic homes face persecution. I know of those who have been disowned in Roman Catholic homes. They've abandoned the faith is what they think. Now they've forsaken the the true church and they're out on something that's not the church. They think they've abandoned it and they persecute them. I know of people who have converted to Christ out of Roman Catholics who have been punched and beaten, thrown down the stairs. And similar experiences happen today to those who embrace Christ from Hindu or Muslim backgrounds as well. And those type of applications are Peter's primary point of application. Those who are suffering for righteousness. Suffering because they name the name of Christ. So I look upon you all here this morning. I think that's the exception rather than the rule. So it's hard, it's hard to apply. It's primarily applicable to those who are living lives of righteousness, experiencing persecution because of the righteousness. Um, but... Take heart, because I think that Peter's words, though that's the primary application, that's what he's directed at, it can, my words this morning, can be applicable to all types of suffering. As I look out upon you, that's the rule and not the exception. We're all facing difficulties and trials in life of some sort. Whether you're sick, facing illness, facing a jobless situation, facing marriage difficulties, facing family difficulties, much of what Peter says will apply to you in your problems. So take heart. I will apply it mostly to those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, but it will apply in many ways. Well, So after that long introduction, let's get into the text. I have six observations this morning of such suffering for the sake of righteousness. First of all, verse 13, suffering for the sake of righteousness isn't natural. It's not natural. He asks the rhetorical question, Peter does in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? And the answer is nobody. I mean, if you're doing good things, who is there to harm you in doing that? Peter just written verses 8 and 9, calling the church to a life of harmony and a life of purity, how to walk in sympathy and brotherly love and a kind-hearted nature and being humble in spirit, not retaliating. Calling to live the good life, right? By, by watching how you speak and watching what you do and watching your relationships. And, and when you're walking that sort of life, what reason would people have to harm you? It's really none. No natural reason. Those who walk on this earth with love and compassion are genuinely loved by others. They're philanthropists who give millions of dollars to charities. They're loved by those who benefit from their charities. 
There's celebrities who donate their time to causes. United Way, Big Brothers, Sisters, the Red Cross. And these deeds are recognized by all as good and they are rarely criticized for their deeds. I mean, who can help but encourage, be encouraged by the example of former President Carter who has devoted much of his life after the White House promoting Habitat for Humanity, humanitarian needs. And in that, we can, we can applaud him and we can be encouraged by that. Many people around the world are. Or, or Mother Teresa, her sacrifice she did for the poor in Calcutta. Now, now, certainly these people are criticized and sometimes rightly so. But their criticism is for other things. Their criticism often doesn't come because of the good that they do. Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Nobody. These people receive Nobel Peace Prizes. They do good things. And within the church, it's as well. If we are about doing good things for... <clears throat> for others in the community, who's there to harm us? The answer really is nobody. And yet, it happens. It happens in Barnul, Siberia. It happens perhaps at your work. Okay. It's not natural, but it happens. Those who lived in Barnul, Siberia in the 1960s knew it. They were unfairly treated. Think, think about this. They, they said... <clears throat> Through every lawful channel, Christians in Barnul and across Russia tried to make their desperate situation known. They pled with their own government to enforce clauses already in the Soviet Constitution and laws that would halt persecution and ensure religious freedom, but their pleas were constantly ignored. See, it wasn't right that they're being persecuted for their faith. And they made appeals and they said, hey, this isn't right. It's not natural. We shouldn't be persecuted for doing what is good. And yet they were. And sometimes, though, the persecution was so bad, it, it startled them and shocked them. Five years after their prayer house had been padlocked shut, the government came with a bulldozer to knock down their building. And they wrote a letter which read in part, Such actions were a great surprise both to us believers and to the unbelievers of the whole town. As I remember, Barnul is the size of Rockford, several hundred thousand people whole town just surprised shocked whoever knew about it was shocked because they're doing good things and you are persecuting them he said especially it's been recognized by those who are actually present at this operation of brutal violence upon us believers unlike anything done since 1937 at the height of stalin's purges it was a sort of thing that you would not believe even if some you someone told you about it it's difficult to avoid the fact that the courts, police, the press, the radio, and all government agencies are obedient executors of the policy of suppressing all religious belief. He says it's not natural. It's not natural for this to be happening. It seems unfair. Everybody around, Christians and non-Christians, saw how unfair it was because it was unnatural. But Peter says, listen, though no one's there to harm you, it does happen. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Listen, the, the possibility exists. And in fact, I might go a little further than that. Uh, a Christian, not only does a possibility exist, but we ought to anticipate that that may well happen. Look over chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. So some strange thing were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised and don't be shocked when it comes. Rather, in some measure, we ought to expect it because the Christian life is one of hardship. Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, the promise comes that there will be a measure of persecution in your life. 
to those new Christians in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Paul strengthened their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to be persecution. It's going to be distress. That's what we ought to expect. Listen, it's not natural. You think people would repay good for good, but people repay evil for the good that you do. But as you think about it, all we're doing is following the Lord in these things. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. John 15, verse 18. Who is more righteous than Jesus? Nobody. And who is hated more than Jesus? Nobody. We, a disciple, he's fully trained to be like his master. When we are like our master, we will be hated as well. Though it's not natural, it will come. It is to be expected. We who have believed in Christ have come to embrace a life in another world. And as such, the current world isn't too thrilled with our life. And Jesus said this, If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. It's my first observation. Suffering for the sake of righteousness, it's not natural, but it comes. Second observation, verse 14. Suffering for the sake of righteousness brings a blessing. Even if, verse 14 says, you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Think about that. What a strange thing to say. You suffer for the sake of righteousness and you are blessed. That's contrary to what we naturally think. And when we think about suffering, we think bad and neon lights. And we run from suffering. We will do almost anything to avoid suffering. And yet, there's a benefit to suffering for the sake of righteousness. There's a blessing that comes suffering for the sake of righteousness. Peter learned this lesson first from Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. For the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Why? Because of a future reward. You're blessed today because of a future reward. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution brings blessing upon your life. I don't know how much more, how to say that, but it does. And Peter not only says it here, but he also says it in chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, there it is. You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So it's not like Peter misspoke or miswrote here. He says it twice, three times even. Uh, you're blessed. Well, the, the, the key question at this point is to say this. How is it that we're blessed when we suffer for the sake of righteousness? How? It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? How are we blessed? Well, I think one of the keys comes from my last two weeks of messages from verses 8 through 12. It's, I made the point here, the good life is the life of following God and seeing God sustain you through your troubles. When you return blessing for the evil, when you don't return insult for insult and persecution comes upon you and you, and you, you keep your tongue from evil and you, you keep your, your lips from speaking lies and when you turn away from the evil and you do good, when you seek peace and pursue it, then you know that's the good life. 
The eyes of God are upon you. In His ears, attend to your prayer. You have the blessing of God to sustain you through those trials. And that is why I think Peter would say you're blessed. In fact, he says that over in chapter 4 like I read. Why are you blessed? Verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. You're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When the persecution comes, you remain true to it, faithful. God is upon you and His His glory is upon you. The blessing of God is upon you and that's where you are blessed. A great example of this, the Apostle Paul. You remember 2 Corinthians 12. He described this pain that was come upon his life as a a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that is. It was a messenger of Satan, perhaps a, a, a false teacher or something who was constantly challenging the works of Paul. Paul hated this. And three times he prayed to the Lord, God, remove this thorn from me. And three times God's answer was no. And then the answer came of explanation. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Power is perfected in weakness. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that my grace which comes upon you is sufficient for you. It will bless you. It will help you. And then Paul says, oh, if that's the case, he says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. There's the blessing. Boasting of your weakness because you know the presence and the blessing of God upon your life. I mean, that's Paul's message, right? In the midst of being tormented by the thorn of the flesh, he had no resources in of himself. Rather, it was all the sustaining hand of God. All that he had was the sustaining hand of God. All that he had was the sustaining hand of God. Is that good enough? I mean, that ought to be everything for us. The sustaining hand of God. That is blessing. What more could you ask for? And Paul rejoiced and received gladly the difficulties that came in that way. And in that way, we're greatly blessed through our sufferings. A good example of this is Hudson Taylor, that great missionary to China. He experienced a blessing through troubles. He was going through so many troublesome times in China. He's writing to his sister. And um, he wrote to his sister, You've asked how I get over my troubles. This is the way. I take them to the Lord. I don't know how it is, but I seldom can read Scripture now without tears of joy and gratitude. That's blessing. She comes to Scriptures and finds out that God is true. Listen, when you're suffering and have nowhere else to turn to but the Lord, like the people in Barnul, and no place to turn except the Lord, and then you discover Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's the blessing upon your life for the awareness of the presence of God which is never obtained through ease. The sort of assurance always is obtained through suffering. That's how it is. <clears throat> suffering for the sake of righteousness isn't natural, brings a blessing. And thirdly, this morning, <clears throat> doesn't need to cause fear. It comes from the last half of verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Paul picking off, Peter picks off some phraseology here from Isaiah chapter 8, the Old Testament, basically saying that when you're facing these times of persecution, don't fear. Don't fear their intimidation. But how easy is it to fear we're facing persecution from others, isn't it? Peter knew this really well. You remember when that dark night some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was arrested for um, and standing trial before the Sanhedrin? Remember where Peter was? Jesus in the in the, the court there and Peter's outside by the gate warming himself by the fire. Remember that? 
And then a, a servant girl comes up. We don't know, maybe Hannah's size. And Hannah's looking at Peter and says, you're one of them, aren't you? He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, And they went away. Another person saw him, looked at him, and said, you're, you're one of them too. He said, man, I'm not. He went away some other place. And then an hour later, same thing took place. Another man said, he was insisting, certainly you, this man also was with him. He's a Galilean, right? He's given away his talk by the way, given away himself by the way of talk. He's up north. Why would he be, why would he be here at this time unless he was a follower of Christ? And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, Peter feared their intimidation. He feared their intimidation. He was fearful of persecution to come if he professed himself to be a follower of Jesus. And so Peter can relate to the fear that comes, but he can also realize that he had conquered the issue as well. Remember after the resurrection... Jesus has been raised from the dead. Peter's in Jerusalem boldly proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. The Sanhedrin called him to give an account. He said, what are you doing? He said, don't talk anymore in this name. And Peter goes out. And he preaches again. And then they call him in again. They said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter said, well, we must obey what? We must obey God and not man. We need to continue to preach. Before being released, he was flogged and ordered once again not to speak in the name of Jesus. And what did he do? He spoke in the name of Jesus because he'd solved the fear problem. Sometime later, Herod had imprisoned Peter intending to kill him just as he had done James a few days earlier. Yet the Lord protected Peter through jail, allowing a miraculous angel to come and lift his chains and allow him to walk right out of that jail. Peter knew what it was to suffer for the sake of righteousness. He knew what it was to fear. And he knew it was not to fear. And I just say this. He knew that God was in control. God was, God was in control of those seeking to intimidate him. And God is in control of those seeking to intimidate you. Don't fear them. Rather, fear God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to stroll destroy both the soul and body in hell. You know, that's one of the things I appreciate about this church in Barnol, Siberia. They had within themselves a greater fear of God than fear of man. At one point, the persecution was so bad, they sent 21 men and women to Moscow to appeal to the Kremlin itself. It's like us, persecution bad here in Rockford. Let's go to the White House. That's what they did. And appeal and say, help us. Here's what Danica wrote. The Christians planned to leave Barnoul on Saturday, May 16, 1964, to fly to Moscow, 1,800 miles away. They would try to see the government officials on Monday morning. This meant they'd be absent from their jobs and perhaps be dismissed when they returned. But they had to take the risk since it was impossible to request prior permission to be absent. The local authorities had any inkling of the real mission to protest at the Presidium They knew they'd never get past the city limits. They'd never get out of town if that was known as their goal. So off they went with their plan. They knew that such a protest could easily land all 21 of them in prison. And reflecting upon what was taking place, one man said his name was Grigory, Gregory, I guess. He said that morning, 
we each asked ourselves, am I willing to die for Christ? Is there anything in my heart preventing fellowship between me and other Christians? Or between me and God? Am I willing to do anything the Lord asks? Am I willing to give my life? He's fearing God rather than man. The next morning, they walked into the Kremlin, presented themselves to the prestigious Presidium, the Executive Council, Supreme Soviet, um, part of the government. Why did they do this? Because they feared God more than they feared man. Suffering for the sake of righteousness doesn't need to cause fear. But it naturally does. It doesn't need to. You can overcome that by looking at God and fearing Him who can cast soul and body in hell. Not fearing man who can just torment the body. Well, fourth. This is perhaps my favorite point. Suffering for the sake of righteousness provides an opportunity. Provides an opportunity for evangelism. Look at verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. As people see you persevere in righteousness, having the joy of the Lord upon your heart, even when facing suffering, that's going to cause people to ask questions. Particularly as Peter says here, they're going to ask this question, what is the hope that is in you? Why do you have this hope? Well, how is it that's allowing you to live this way? Remember when Paul and Silas were in Philippi, they were thrown into jail, in prison on trumped up charges. The master of a fortune-telling slave girl were angry because they cast demons out of the slave girl and they lost all means for profit by the girl. They, what was good for the slave girl wasn't good for them. And so Paul and Silas were beaten without a fair trial and thrown into prison. Yet while in prison, you know the story, they were singing hymns of praise to God. Their fellow prisoners listening, listening to them sing hymns and pray. And obviously something's different about these men. I mean, they came in bruised and bloody. And yet here they are, they are singing in jail. They should be sorrowful, but what were they doing? They were rejoicing. Then an earthquake shook the foundations of the prison home and all the doors were open, the chains unfastened. Rather than fleeing, Paul and Silas and the other prisoners remained in prison. And you remember what the jailer said? He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay. Maybe that's exactly what he said. Probably is exactly what he said. But he could have just as well said this. I see you are falsely accused of bringing harm to the city. I see that you are mercifully beaten without a proper trial. I see your bodies are, are bruised and bleeding. I see this jail isn't the nicest place to be. The smell of sewage and the rats around there and the cold dampness of the place. And yet I see that you have a joy about yourself, which I don't have. I want this joy. Can you please give me an account of the hope that's within you? What must I do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer was saying. At this point, they preached Jesus to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and all your household. And that very day, both the jailer and his household believed. And what provided this evangelistic opportunity? Suffering for the sake of righteousness with joy in the heart. Now, you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, I think, right? There's a, a donkey. And what's his name again? I forget. 
Eeyore, that's right. And Eeyore is like the puddle glum of Winnie the Pooh, right? Oh, we'll never make it. The eternal pessimist, right? If Paul and Silas had suffered from Eeyore theology, they would never have been asked about the hope within them, right? Oh, we're being persecuted. Oh, this is terrible. What was it that caused them? It was a hope that they had that gave them a joy, that gave them the ability to sing through their trials, that gave them the platform to witness for their faith. That's what we need to have. Going through trials, realizing we have a blessing, putting forth a joy, and seeing others ask. A few weeks ago, I emailed out to all of you, put it in the Weekly Word, a summary of John Piper's article, Don't Waste Your Cancer. How many of you read that? Good, it's powerful, it's really good. He wrote it the evening before he's to have surgery, prostate cancer. Listen to his his tenth point of ways you might not waste your cancer. His tenth point said this: You will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. You can't be all wasted if you don't use this as an opportunity to witness for Christ. Then he explains. He says Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. Luke 21. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Terrible things. And yet that's your opportunity. So does the cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. Here's the golden opportunity to show that He is worth more than life. So don't waste it. Don't waste your cancer. See, when people see you suffering from cancer, you still have a joyful attitude. People will take notice. And let me say this. Especially if your cancer is terminal. Especially if your cancer is terminal. I mean, anybody can rejoice with good news. The surgery went well. We think we got all the cancer out. Woohoo! The world rejoiced at that news. And it's right to rejoice at that news. Cancer free is a good thing, alright? So we can rejoice with the news you received of Michelle Gatier's mother having a successful surgery. We rejoice in that. But, the world can't rejoice at bad news because they have no hope. When the doctor opens you up, only to find out the cancer spread all through all your internal organs and then close you up just just quickly and tells you the news, how are you going to respond? That's like a great opportunity to put forth your hope that's within you. That's the time to shine. Say, doctor, I know my prognosis doesn't look good and I'm saddened about the prospect of dying and dying soon. But I have a hope in the bad news that you gave me. I have a hope of dying and being with Jesus someday because of what He accomplished for me on the cross. And you give that testimony and then die well. Die well and give a testimony to the world that you have a greater hope than this life. I mentioned earlier in the time of Scripture reading and prayer about how Tom Duncan, one of our neighbors, lost his mother. She's a godly woman. Her testimony was, that she died sweetly. She was sweet until the end. She wasn't bitter at life. Rather, she only wanted to be with Jesus. When she could no longer speak anymore, 
uh, the testimony from the Duncan family is merely that she just pointed her hand to, to heaven. She said, that's where I want to be. I want to be with Jesus. That is giving evidence and giving, um, giving a testimony for the hope that's within you. Now, we ought to give that testimony all the time whether people ask or not. But here it says, it's astonishing, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Right? Live holy for Him, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. How many of you have been asked? What's the hope within you? A couple of you guys, a couple of you guys. If you haven't been asked, it may just be because you haven't lived any different than the world. You live just like they live. There's no reason for you to stand out. See, the world is happy when things go well for them. And the world is grumpy when things don't go well for them. But the world isn't happy when things don't go well for them. And so when things aren't going well for you, It's your time to shine. It's your time to live with genuine joy about you. I mean, what is it that gives Johnny Erickson Tata such a platform to speak in our generation? It's 40 years in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic and then writing a book entitled The God I Love. That's what gives her a platform. And that's what causes the world to look up. That causes many Christians and non-Christians to look at her and say, "What, Johnny, what's the reason of hope within you? And she's had many opportunities to speak forth of this hope. Chapter after chapter. This is an excellent book, by the way. Chapter after chapter. Just the writing is, is excellent. I loved reading this book. Remember when I was reading this? I couldn't put it down. And I uh, just kept going. And um, she finishes the book by recalling a time when she traveled to Israel. Uh, the Pool of Bethesda. Talked about, I think, in John chapter 4, John chapter 5, I forget where, where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. A man had been paralyzed for like 38 years. Couldn't get in the, the water after it stirred. Jesus said, you want to? And he healed him and he got up and he walked away. So here's, here's Johnny thinking about this man at this place was, was healed. And uh, then she said this. It wasn't often I could presuppose God's motives, but I could with this one. He had brought me to the pool of Bethesda that I might make an altar of remembrance out of the ruins, that I might see and thank Him for the wiser choice, the better answer, the harder yet richer path. (laughs) Unbelievable. Ah, this is the God I love, the center, the peacemaker, the passport to adventure, the joyride, and the answer to all our deepest longings, the answer to all our fears, man of sorrows and Lord of joy, always permitting what he hates to accomplish something he loves. And he had brought me here all the way from home, halfway around the earth, so I could declare to anyone within earshot of the whole universe, to anyone who might care, that yes, there are more important things in life than walking. Now, you and I have no idea what 40 years in a wheelchair is like. And yet, that's the thing that's going to catch people's attention. 40 years in a wheelchair, afflicted, incredible hardship, and yet saying through all, I love the God who put me here. An amazing testimony. See, when you live above your circumstances, other people will notice. The closest I've got to someone asking me this question was... uh, a few months after we moved here to Rockford, we hosted a foreign exchange student from Taiwan. Tony was his name. He was in our home uh, Thanksgiving weekend, three or four days. 
And over the course of the weekend, I had opportunities to talk to him about my life. At that point, I had just quit my computer job in DeKalb and just moved up here to Rockford and to become a pastor of a church. Now, for him, having left Taiwan to come here to study, pursuing the education which pursues the dollar and the good life, it didn't compute to him. He didn't understand why I'd I'd leave a well-paying measurably stable job to be a pastor of a church where I encounter difficulties and uncertainty. And we talked about it on several occasions, just as Christ came out and things like that. And, and I remember one time, we were in SR's room, and he said, Steve, can you t- just tell me again why it is that you moved up here to Rockford? Trying to compute it in his mind. I was able to tell him of uh, the hope I have in Christ that compelled me to forsake my job and to come up here and be a pastor and that wasn't quite like I was suffering for the sake of righteousness. But it is making a sacrifice of sorts, which causes people to say, whoa, that's a little different. And when you live differently than the world, people will notice you'll have an opportunity to speak forth the gospel of Christ. It's your only hope, right? That, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And that's our hope. And that's what we have to proclaim to others. Do you want someone to ask you to give an account for your hope that's within you? I just say this. Live a radical Christian life. And others will notice. And really, living a radical life is live the Christian life. Alright? People will notice it. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Denounce the world. Listen, when you give half of your income away to help others, the world will notice. When you splatter your refrigerator with all the missionaries you support, the world will notice. When you forsake your vacation to take a short-term missions trip, the world will notice. When you revolve your life around Christian activity, the world will notice. When you devote yourself to serving others in the church with wholehearted love, the world will notice. When your mouth can't stop speaking of the wonders of the grace that you've found in the cross of Christ, the world will notice. And when they notice, they may well ask you to give an account for the hope that's within you. When they ask, make sure you respond properly. Peter says, verse 16 at the end, make sure that when you respond, you respond in gentleness and reverence. You don't need to prove your commitment. You don't need to be proud of your commitment. You don't need to lift yourself up as some great example. You've already got the audience. You already have the platform. Humbly explain your hope and let the Holy Spirit persuade the hearts of those who are here. Suffering for the sake of righteousness provides an opportunity for evangelism. Well, my fifth point Suffering for the sake of righteousness shames those who persecute. That's what verse 16 says. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The idea here is not that you're attempting to bring harm against those who are persecuting you. Rather, the idea is that your behavior will bring those who are harming you shame upon them of what they are doing. And then their slander will be silenced. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So also does good conscience in continuing, continuing to do what is right help to silence those who are seeking your harm. It just does. It will shame them. They'll be ashamed of what they're doing. The persecution will mitigate in general. 
When you return their insult with your blessing as a way of reducing the severity of their hostility towards you. Peter had mentioned this already before. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you, evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Something's going to change in them. They observe you and they're going to be giving glory to God. Chapter 2, verse 15. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Right By suffering righteously, People are going to be silenced because of the shame which they've been cursing you before. As foolish men observe your consistent character, they will recognize in you an authenticity of behavior which will quiet them. And again, one of the testimonies here in in this book, one of the believers in Barnall, he used to persecute Christians he used to persecute Christians who were working for him. He personally would disrupt the worship services and oversaw the arrest of some believers. In the process of interrogating and persecuting the Christians, though, he gradually heard the gospel. They responded, blessing for insult, right? They, they got an insult and they returned blessing. When he condemned the Christian, they replied with Bible verses. Slowly the Scriptures changed this man's heart. And one day he went to disband a meeting. At the door he discovered he couldn't bludgeon the believers. This was probably his custom before. Instead he fell on his knees in front of the startled Christians and cried to God for his salvation. Not only been silenced, but brought him to salvation, suffering righteously. They observed your good behavior. They were reviling it. But at some point put to shame, came to Christ. And after his conversion, he went to every Christian who had persecuted him and asked for forgiveness. See, it's a good conscience of Christians which shame this man, eventually convict him of his own need for a Savior. That's the sort of thing that you need to do when persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Just respond appropriately. That's what you need to do. The church in Barnoul marked this. After the martyrdom of this man that I told you about, they ripped out his tongue. The church wrote a letter to give their perspective on how they ought to look at us. His brothers and sisters, by this letter, we do not want to create in you a feeling of hatred toward our persecutors. Even though this evil is done by wicked people, they did not do it on their own. They've been led and encouraged to do evil. No less guilty of this murder are those who unceasingly publish lies in the papers on the basis of which the court proceedings are begun and wild hatred is stirred up against believers. This is a collective sin of the world. Let us rather look upon our persecutors as Christ taught us. But I say unto you, love your enemies and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Our Lord says, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. We are being condemned not for evil works, nor for breaking laws, but for good deeds. And that type of response will silence and shame those who persecute you. Silencing them and possibly bringing them to a state of repentance. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. I just have real quick last point. It's not natural. It brings a blessing. doesn't need a cause to fear doesn't need to cause fear, provides an opportunity, shames those who persecute. And here it is. It's better than doing evil. Isn't it? 
better to suffer for righteousness than to flip the other side and do evil. It comes from verse 17 here. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Once you notice there that it is under the sovereign hand of God that your suffering comes. It's where you're going to find your solace and your joy and your comfort if God should will it so. Right? When the suffering comes, it's coming because God's willing it so. You need to realize that it's better to submit yourself to the will of God in the suffering than to try to get outside of God's will, avoid the suffering by doing evil. There are many times that we can do evil and avoid the suffering, but we ought not to. It's better that we just do what is right. In chapter 2, Paul talked, Peter talked this way. It says in verse 20, What credit is there if when you sin and harshly treated you endure with patience? That doesn't find any credit if you do evil and then are harshly treated. But what finds favor with God is when you do what is right and suffer for it. That finds favor with God. And that's what Peter tells us to do. So if you're in a situation you're suffering for righteousness, if you're in a situation where you're suffering, just continue to walk and do good. Continue to walk and do good. Continue to walk and do good. Do like Job. Remember when he was afflicted? His wife wanted to just curse God and die. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Walk like Job. Don't, don't speak against God. Don't slander Him. Don't do evil to get outside of the persecution. Your friends want you to go someplace. Don't, don't go along with them to get the persecution. Rather, do what's right and face the wrath because you'll be blessed. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray for Your strength to accomplish these things. Um, I think about how lukewarm Church of Christ is in the United States, perhaps because we know nothing of these sufferings. Um, Lord, I pray You'd do what it takes, God, to cause us to pursue You with great zeal, great passion. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata in this book. She had written to God in her journal, God, whatever it takes. And you struck her with paralysis where she's been for 40 years. And she can say that was good. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in the difficulties that come upon our lives. As James says, count all joy. Encounter various trials that come upon your life. God, so that we would walk passionately for you and know the blessing as life comes. Know that we can be freed from the fear of man with these things. That we'd have an opportunity to share the gospel with people. We would see people shamed and silenced as we continue to walk about doing good according to Your will. So help us in these things, Lord. I would pray. And I pray that we would see that through these times, our only help is in Jesus. It's the only place we can go. It's the only um, refuge for our soul. So help us to continue to cast our burden upon Him because He cares for us. Pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ who was persecuted as an example for us. Amen.